This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. First thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the <laughs> No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. The people who were aggrieved in the 50s and 60s were people who didn't have a ton of political power, which was deeply unjust, but also limited their ability to blow up the system. Now the people who are aggrieved, middle-class white men, have a ton of political power, mm -hmm. and that makes it much easier for them to blow up the system. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network, where we ask smart people strange questions in the hopes of understanding a world on fire. This is a great episode. It features our very first three-peat guest, Yasha Monk. Uh, Yasha is a lecturer on government at Harvard University. He's a senior fellow at New America, a columnist at Slate, host of the excellent Good Fight podcast, and he is also the author of the new book, The People vs. Democracy, where he argues... Persuasively, I would say that liberal democracy is decomposing into its component parts, illiberal democracy and democratic illiberalism. Yasha's book is scary stuff. Um, of all the books like this that I've read recently, and I've read a bunch of them, it is the scariest. And that made him a perfect guest for a discussion I've badly wanted to have. How bad are things really? I, I know they feel terrible. To me, they feel terrible. I know that every time I turn on Twitter or switch on the news, there are a thousand five-alarm fires in progress. I know the bookshelves are filling with tomes titled How Democracies Die and On Tyranny. But, but are we as a country, is America really less classically liberal and idealistically democratic than we were in, say, the 20th century? Or does our alarm about the present rest in part on an overly nostalgic view of our past? And even if it does, does that matter? Does that tell anything about what we're living through now? I will say this. I recognize some of the positions I take in this episode may come back to haunt me when Donald Trump fires Robert Mueller and Congress names him Sun God and confirms Michael Cohen as attorney general. But I think for all of us wrapped up in this era, it's important to question our assumptions, to contextualize this period within America's real history rather than our imagined past. And Yasha, who I think is the most persuasive champion of the case for alarm, was the perfect guest with which to have this conversation. As always, you can email me your feedback, your thoughts, your guest ideas at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. With that said, here is Yasha Monk. Yasha Monk, welcome back to the podcast for a record-breaking third time. I'm I'm truly honored and touched. And congrats well. on the, the new book coming out. This was, I had a weird experience reading this book because I found it 
it is actually one of the most persuasive books I have read. It's really well argued. It has a lot of brilliant insights. And it somehow left me feeling much less pessimistic than it should have. It convinced me that maybe everything is better than I thought and better than you say. Look, I'm very grateful to hear that. Please explain to me where the optimism lies so and what we can do. Uh, let, let's set some framework here. You say liberal democracy is, is decomposing into illiberal democracy and undemocratic liberalism. Yep. Walk through that. Set, set the table. Yeah, so I think it makes sense to actually think of our political system as having these two core components, right? We often talk about democracies encompassing all of the things we like, and I think it makes it really hard to actually think carefully about the world, right? So take an example. A bunch of years ago, there was this referendum in Switzerland. Switzerland is a country, a little bit like, like California as a state. Wait, where Switzerland is a country? It is, like Australia. <laughs> um, I thought it was purely mythical. No, it exists. It's, uh, you know. um, look, so, so they had this referendum on whether or not uh, you should be allowed to build minarets in the country. And something like 62%... And a minaret is? A minaret is, 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 is the part of a mosque that's a tower that's sometimes used for a court of prayer. Right? And a majority of Swiss people voted against the building of the minaret, which means that the Swiss constitution now reads, and I quote more or less, there's freedom of religion in Switzerland, the building of minarets is forbidden, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Now, the reaction to that in Switzerland, in Germany, in the United States was a bunch of people saying, oh my God, that referendum was really undemocratic. And I get the instinct, right, which is that something bad's going on here. The rights of minorities in the country are really being challenged in a way that I personally find intolerable. But it's sort of just confusing to say this is undemocratic because democracy in the literal sense means the rule of a demos, rule of a people. In my sense, it actually means translating to some degree popular views into public policies. So wh what sense does it make to call this undemocratic? So I think that we should go back to actually thinking of our political system as having these two key components, liberalism and democracy, right? So the liberal part has nothing to do with liberal and conservative, Barack Obama versus George W. Bush. It's about protection of individual rights, of the separation of powers, of minority rights, of the rule of law. Right? And once you've done that, you can define democracy in a much more straightforward way, as I was saying, not as everything we like, but as translating popular views into public policies. So what I think has been going on for a while is that these two core components of, of our political system that we've always thought of as going together are starting to come apart. But for a long time, we've had political systems that I would call forms of rights without democracy or undemocratic liberalism, in which... Yes, we've protected individual rights relatively well, uh, the rule of law pretty well, the separation of powers very well. But what we haven't done very well is translate popular views into public policies. So this is, I think, a, a great bridge. And one, I really want to emphasize something you just said, just for the audience, and, and this is going to be me sounding pedantic. We're going to use the term liberal a lot in this conversation, and it is never going to mean liberal in the American yeah. political sense. It is always going to mean classical liberal, protection of things like freedom of speech. Just It's going to be a super confusing conversation <laughs> if you missed that, that point Yasha just made. So here's my thing of reading the book. I found your diagnosis of what we are going through right now completely correct. Um, you know, maybe, maybe not completely. I have some quibbles here and there, but I, I found it very persuasive. What I did not find persuasive, what, what it really caused me to question is the, at times implicit, at times explicit, and for me, very deeply held sense of where we're coming from. Okay. Which is to say, at what point in American history 
were we ever more of a liberal democracy, save like the last 10 years, than we are now. This idea that we had a liberal democracy that is now decomposing into these other things. When we, you know, in 1980 and 1960 and 1940 and 1910 and 1820, like, when were we more of a liberal democracy than now. This, this to me is something that I am struggling with, that perhaps we are working backwards from how crazy making the Trump era feels and sort of justifying correctly that, that something is really wrong here, but missing that other eras that did not seem so strangely abnormal on their face nevertheless had much more scary threads running through them. Well, I would distinguish between two very important things here, right? The way that democracy has been established in, in, in most countries, other than the ones where it was established very late, was that you had something resembling what I would call liberal democracy, relatively well established, but only accessible to a limited number of people. And then over time, it got expanded more and more, right? So think of the United Kingdom. You have a form of parliamentary democracy that is actually quite responsive. You have um, relatively good protection of people's legal rights and so on, but it is limited through the franchise. A, is limited to men, right? B, it's limited to very affluent people for a long time. And then over time, it's expanded. It starts to include uh, less affluent men as well. It starts to include women. It starts to include immigrants, right? Um, in, in a similar way in the United States, you know, you go back to the late 18th century, early 19th century, in an obvious sense, a majority of the population of the United States was not living under liberal democracy because a significant number of them were slaves. Uh, later, a significant number of them were, were, were citizens, but ones with, with barely respected political rights. Um, there was women who didn't have any say and so on, right? But within the set of people who were citizens of that society, you had a set of political rules and norms that actually worked relatively well. And the hope was that over time, you would manage to expand the circle of people who's actually included as true members in the political system more and more and more. Now, I think on that count, we've done actually a fantastic job. And sometimes when I hear really pessimistic people talking about, for example, race relations in the United States, I want to say, hey, there's lots of things that are wrong with our country today. No question about it. And perhaps it was better to be an ethnic minority, a religious minority, a sexual minority, a gender minority in this country two years ago than it is today. We can argue about that. But it certainly is better to be a member of any of those minorities today than 20 or 40 or 60 years Yeah, ago. than even in the Clinton era. Yeah, absolutely. When you think about gay rights, mm -hmm. right? I mean, don't ask, don't tell was instituted and in the no, 90s, right? no thought of going back on that. That's something I think is notable here, right? You never hear Donald Trump saying, let's bring cultural rights back to where they were just in 1998. So that's right. I mean, I do worry, and we can perhaps talk about that later, because it's a, it's a more minor point, but it's an important one about the way in which authoritarian populism can roll back culture as well. So for example, in, in Russia, which obviously is an extreme case, you've just had a bunch of domestic violence laws rolled back in ways that really make women very vulnerable in a way that weren't 10 or 20 years ago. But, so, but I, I, I agree that that's not the... And that's I, not, I have that's a not, U.S. Not, focus. I should, I should admit this. You have a much more internationalist view than I did. I'm thinking very much here about the, about the U.S. And look, I mean, I don't, you know, if people like Donald Trump dominated our politics for the next 30, 40 years, which I'm not saying is likely, but if they did, I'm not so sure about where we would end up on some of those minority rights issues. But, but that, that's not the main response I have to you. Right? The main response I have to you is we've done a good job of including more and more and more people 
in the set of people, in the tent of people who actually get to participate in political and social and so on rights. And that is a tremendous achievement and it's something I always emphasize. But the degree to which the people who are included in the system actually respect those rules and norms is in a very, very dangerous way subsiding in a way that is actually quite unique in American history, that is a new development. And what we see around the world is that once that starts to happen, you can get the downfall of democracy, you can get the rise of dictators. So it would be wrong to look at the United States today and say, you know, it is a less just society than in 1960. Obviously, by and large, our society is more just than 1960. But that's conformable. You can believe that and at the same time believe but we now face a very unique threat to the survival of some of the founding political institutions in our country that we need in order to preserve that progress and to make sure that we don't end up with a dictator. So, the, so that seems right to me. The, the, the place where the reason I want to harp on this for a minute, and, and I want to harp on it as somebody who has spent a lot of time talking about the threat to rights in this era, the, how, how bad things are, I, I do think it is important for us to to somehow be able to keep the level and the trend separate in our heads. Mm -hmm. That there's a real concern about the level right now. Mm -hmm. But in terms of trend, in terms of what the what the political system is actually doing, I recognize that there's another set of questions that, that, that relate to your research about what people in the system believe. But in terms of what the system is doing, we have not had as much of a decline in what our democracy actually does, then, then I think some of our rhetoric, some of my rhetoric at times, as I look back on myself, would suggest, and, and the reason I think this is important is that this is an alarming period. But one of the things that I have come to believe about it is that there is a visibility to the things about it that are alarming. Mm -hmm. And that at other points in American history, we've had things that were more alarming but we're in a funny way less visible. And somehow, I think this is a, a tricky thing for those of us in the media. Somehow we need to be able to keep these things in our head at the same time. There's been a lot of periods in American history where people did things that were much more dangerous to fundamentally what we were supposed to be as a country than Donald Trump, but they did it in a, you know, kind of visually prudent, normal, calm way. And so it was somehow less visible. It, it was integrated better into what American politics works like. I mean, I, I think here of, you know, mid-century, over and over and over again, the U.S. Senate filibustered anti-lynching laws. Mm -hmm. And when they did it, they didn't send out crazy fucking tweets about it. And, you know, we're in this kind of reality show presidency. They just got up there in suits and ties and did work the Senate the way the Senate is meant to be worked and allowed a campaign of domestic terrorism to continue sweeping across the American South. And it was just like, that's American democracy working. You yeah. know, people looked at it and said the political system is acting normally. Now Donald Trump uh, acts in ways that I think set off emotional alarm for all of us all the time, in part because the way in which he is acting out is very noticeable. It's human scale. It's not the system quietly running a kind of illiberal program in the background. It's a human being acting in ways that if your friend or your spouse or your boss or your employee was doing it, you'd be super concerned about them. But I'm not sure that our level of emotional alarm is proportionate to any more to the danger that is actually being posed to the system. So, so I strongly disagree. I, I want to preface, though, Please. that, that I, I think you are 
pushing on something but I don't bring out clearly enough in the book. And I think I'm already seeing that I'm learning something from this conversation. So, so, so I do think we're getting at something important, but I disagree with the overall takeaway, but we shouldn't be alarmed. Look, Not that we shouldn't be alarmed, just that we should keep... No, no, but we should, yeah. Right. There's a lot of people, scholars who study populism at the moment, who say something along the lines of, I think it's a cruder version of your argument, but it's a similar argument. It's helpful to bring it out, right? Who's saying, hey, you know what? When you look at what views people have on um, racial tolerance, when you look at what views people have on things like homosexuality, they have much more tolerant views than they had 20 years ago. So the rise of this kind of populism and so on is just an angry counter-reaction by a sort of declining minority. We'll get through it and everything will be fine. And I really think that that underestimates the point that you can have two very different kinds of threats to the rule of liberal democracy, right? And one of them is we have a political system that works well, that is functional, in which we accept that the opposition is legitimate and they can win elections, in which a president doesn't try to undermine the independent functioning of a Department of Justice, in which you don't get an undermining of freedom of speech and the freedom of the press eventually and all of those kinds of things. But there are, let's call them what they are, racist or, or, or Islamophobic or anti-Semitic or various forms of limits on who gets to actually be included in the system, right? That is... That is one kind of problem. The other kind of problem is, no, the set of people who gets included has actually expanded, but the institutions you need to sustain to make sure you don't degenerate into dictatorship are going down. And you have lots of authoritarian populists around the world who are pretty tolerant. I mean, actually, when you look at, or on certain things, often in order to all the more effectively be intolerant against others, but when you look at a lot of the European populist movements, uh, for example, they make a big deal of how tolerant they are towards homosexuals, how tolerant they are towards various groups, precisely to say, oh, you know why? Because Muslims are the ones who are really against those groups, and this justifies us in being more hostile towards them. But, but I don't think that we're anywhere close to the least tolerant America has been. And by the way, I think that on the job of creating an equal multi-ethnic society, I have more hope that the United States will eventually succeed in that than that my native Germany will succeed in that, than that Italy will succeed in that. Because I think we have actually, despite all of the injustices today in America, come a long way on that. But I am very, very worried that we have so little consensus now about how political institutions are supposed to work, what the limits are on what the president can do, what the importance of our political institutions are, and that's the threat that I see predominantly from the right, but also on parts of the left, that I'm really scared that will devolve into dictatorial rule. And, and I don't think it's a helpful answer to that to say, oh, but perhaps in that dictatorial rule will be a little less openly homophobic. I mean, that's great. That's, I mean, I would take better, a better non-homophobic a dictator dictatorial rule. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I'm not, and I'm not I'm downplaying that. That makes a big difference normatively, actually. But, but I don't think it's a response. It's a fognal. It's a different question. It's not a response to... Are our political institutions in danger of devolving? Well, that that I think is 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 fair, and and the the way I would answer it is to say that there is a question here of what question one is asking. So yeah. I'm reading the book, and and one thing I've been doing recently is immersing myself in a lot of this literature. So so I've read How Democracies Die and Political Tribes, and and, and your fantastic book. And I mean, we've been talking for you know a lot in the past year. I've been thinking a lot about this stuff, and. One of the questions I am trying to settle in myself that emerges out of my day-to-day -day work is let's say you're asking yourself, one to ten, how worried should I be about American democracy? And, and here I'm even creating the problem you said. How worried should I be about American liberal democracy, right? 
American political institutions. And a lot of days, I feel like it's a seven. Like, just like literally feel that way. And I look at what I was covering over the weekend, I think, well, maybe that was actually a three. Maybe, maybe that was just, it's bad that the president is tweeting stuff at the FBI and, you know, trying to go to war with a deep state that is mostly made up of people he's appointed to different positions. But maybe it's not as big of a deal as things that happen at other times in American history that, one, I was less worried about, the ones I lived through, but also that as a country, we've now wrapped into this narrative of progress. And the reason I think that it's important, on one hand, and I think this is related to what you're saying, well, maybe we shouldn't be comparing them. To say that one time you had pneumonia and now you have, you know, whatever, well, it's bad to be sick one way or the other. You don't have to compare which one is worse. But it is to say that I think that there is a rhetoric and, and I do think you're part of this, and I think I'm part of this, of panic right now, of something has gone wrong at a level that is almost unique in American political history. Um, you know, I'll, I'll give an example from the book. You write, until recently, the process of democratic consolidation really has been a one-way street. When, when, when you consolidate into more of a democracy, a liberal democracy, you stay that way. That was the idea. And what you're saying is we should be worried. Maybe that's not true. Yeah. Well, one thing I was thinking when I read that was – well, over what time period? We had the Emancipation Proclamation in this country, and then we collapsed into Reconstruction and backlash. We had sort of a seesaw around civil rights for quite some time where things got worse before they got better. So, I mean, we're looking at a series of years with Donald Trump here. I mean, we're only we're just entering year two of the presidency, and we're saying, well, look, America might be deconsolidating. When I think that we have watched more severe threats to what we're supposed to be as a political system gather momentum for longer periods than this, which is not to say this isn't bad. That's the hard thing. It's not to say this isn't bad, but it is to say that the feeling that we are undergoing something unique here that should upend our, our, our understanding of the fundamental stability of these structures, maybe that's a feeling that, that we need to interrogate more closely. But I, I think you're mixing the two, you know, you say you agree with my distinction, but I think in your question, you sort of collapse the two things again, right? So Yes, I'm, so, I'm so, doing so, that purposefully, though. Right, but, but, but look, would I take somewhat benevolent dictator and a country without slavery over a democracy with slavery? Probably. No, but let me just push but, the, the distinction here once, so, just so you're responding to the right thing for me. I, I am trying to think, like— when we're talking about liberal democracy, a lot of things can be a threat to liberal democracy, right? The, the point isn't dictator versus, you know, something else. It's how big is a threat? How much have we veered away from what you define as liberal democracy? That, that's, the only, that's the only question I want to ask you in this, right? It's, I, I it's mean, about how far off the path are I don't we, know no how, matter which direction we've gone off the path. Okay, so let me run with that metaphor, yeah, right? With please. the metaphor you sort of implemented a moment ago. I don't know how helpful it is to say to a 70-year-old guy, all right, look, when, when you were 35, you had a heart attack. It was touch and go there, but you got through it. Uh, you know, now you have cancer, you're going to get through it. And the answer to that is, well, there was a different disease at a different point. It was terrifying, right? It was horrible, but, but I don't, you know, this is a different disease at a different moment. And to say, well, yeah, you have cancer, but, you, you know, you had a heart attack at 35 and that might have been worse. Well, perhaps the heart attack at that moment was worse, but you may still die of cancer, Right. And, and, and so, so let me try and justify a little bit about the language that you read there, because it, it, it goes back to a real consensus that the political science literature used to have around this, right? Look, political scientists knew for the last 12 years 
um, as Larry Diamond shows and as Freedom House shows, we've been in a, in a democratic recession, which means that for each of the 12 last years across the world, many more democracies have, many more countries have moved away from democracy than have moved towards it. Now, that's worrying and scary, but it's not that scary. Why? Because we've had democratic waves and reverse waves a lot of times in the past, from the mid-19th century to the time of around World War II to the 1970s, etc. What's special about this moment is that not just Francis Fukuyama and so on, but, but mainstream political scientists thought, look, poor democracies sometimes die. So it's not surprising that you can have progress and then, you know, a country like Kenya at the moment is really, its democracy is threatened and that's tragic, but that's not surprising because it doesn't, it's not very affluent. Um, it has a large share of people who, who are not very educated and so on, right? We knew that some of our town regimes might remain stable, right? Okay. But we thought there was this core set of democracies which had reached relative affluence, something like $14,000 GDP per capita, which had had free and fair elections through which they changed the governments a bunch of times. And they were safe. They were consolidated. You didn't have to worry about them. And that gave you this really optimistic view of what the future would look like, right? Which meant, hey, democracy in this country is set. It's fine. Now, over time, other democracies that are fledgling may become more affluent or some relatively affluent dictatorship may have a democratic revolution and then they'll come and join the column. And over time, the space of democracy in the world is going to expand. But what's happened over the last five or 10 years? Some of the countries in the world that political scientists had called consolidated, had fought where consolidated, like Hungary, right, are starting to slide into straightforward dictatorship. In Hungary, we have an election coming up very soon in which the media are no longer free because Viktor Orban has dominated the state media and has forced the sale of private media in which the courts have been reformed because they're inefficient and so on, which gave the government control over them, in which the Electoral Commission is staffed by cronies of Viktor Orban so that it investigated all of the opposition parties and fined them huge sums of money so they couldn't campaign while miraculously not investigating the party of Orban, Fidesz. And so we have elections coming up that are neither free nor fair in an EU member state that was supposed to be a consolidated democracy. That data point, I would say, is more important than the others, not because I care more about Hungary, but because it shows that our assumption about democratic consolidation was wrong. But countries in which we thought this can't happen here can undergo this process. And then I look at what's going on you know, in the news, on the headlines every day, and it's really damn difficult to make heads or tails of it. I sometimes wake up and I feel like the threat is a three out of ten because the president is a bozo and... You know, he's not being very, you know, if, if it was a populist Olympiads, he would not be anywhere close to medal ranks, you know. <laughs> and like, we're going to get through this. I mean, there's other days when I feel generally scared. But but I want to add one point about that, which is that when you look at what Turkish newspapers, or for that matter, American newspapers like the New York Times, Washington Post, were writing about Turkey a couple of years ago after Recep Erdogan took power there. When you look about at what they were writing about Viktor Orban a few years after he took power, it was, well, there are some concerns, but on the whole, they seem to be deepening democracy and this is probably healthy for the country. The political leads in the country and outside observers didn't see what was coming. So when you look at Trump's tweets, when you look at the fact that he seems to be now inching closer and closer to firing Robert Mueller, when you look at the fact that Andrew McCabe has been fired for whatever reason. There may have been good reason, but certainly under intense political pressure of a form that is unprecedented. Yeah, even, even if there's it good is, reason, it's bad process. Exactly. It is 
easy to say, well, but these are individual cases and so on. I don't think we're now that far away from a moment when 2020, not only will the Department of Justice not be investigating Donald Trump, but it'll investigate in a politically motivated way whoever his opponent is. We're not that far away from that. We weren't that far away from it in 2016 in certain ways. So, yes, my alarm is not at three out of 10, even when I step back from the news, even when I step back from the headlines. When I look at the international context and when I look at how fragile some of these institutions are, it's a seven. So this is this is where I think, and, and I want to start going through some of the, the, the sub points you bring up in this, but this is why I think I'm bringing, it, bringing this up in this way. I, I completely agree that the particular threat we face now needs to be taken seriously. And the global view you bring into this is a, a whole different kettle of fish, as they say. Um, the thing that I have been struggling with is I think it is important to have more of a tragic imagination if you're going to take even the current threat seriously. And this isn't something that, that I'm pinning on you. It's something I'm pinning actually on us in the media. I think that there is a very rosy view of our political history as a country, a view of this arc always bending towards justice, a view of a mid-century America that, you know, the, the, the golden age of America, the building of the middle class, a period in which, you know, Congress worked together and we didn't have polarization. And I think that it is important to have an accurate view of that history, to understand, one, the fragility of this country, because it is easy to overestimate our own stability, and two, to be able to understand, well, what are we going through right now and how is it different? And, and so let me give a, a different example that actually isn't about democracy for a minute. I was invited recently to give a talk at a university or to be part of a forum, I should say. And the it, it changed, but the original question was, has American politics ever been this bad? And I mean, the initial thought is, well, we had a civil war. It's been much worse. Right. But then you think about... And that's the right answer. Right. And then you think about mid-century, 50s, 60s, 70s, and you think about what happened. Uh, John F. Kennedy was killed. RFK was killed. Martin Luther King was killed. Malcolm X was killed. Um, Harvey Milk in San Francisco was killed. Gerald Ford was almost killed. Uh, Squeaky Fromm's gun went off from a foot away from him, and the gun just didn't fire. Ronald Reagan was actually shot. It went through his ribs and punctured a lung. So we had this incredible spate of political violence. At Kent State, National Guards fired on student protesters and killed them. There were urban riots. We had the civil rights movement where in order to try to get the right to vote, um, African-Americans were being beaten bloody in the streets and had dogs set on them and were killed. We had a society that I think in, in many ways, a political culture that in many ways was coming apart more profoundly than what we're seeing now. Mm. But American politics in a, in a different way was very stable. Mm. It was non-polarized. The Democratic Party had conservatives in it. The Republican Party had liberals in it. Uh, Congress was somehow able, able to absorb a lot of this and then bring it somewhere towards consensus. And sometimes, mm -hmm. by the way, that consensus was racial exclusion yep. and the continuation of a very illiberal form of democracy. But nevertheless, it was able to, to attain some kind of stability out of that. Um, you know, Richard Nixon, I think you had a, a stronger response and a more credible response from the political system to his crimes than what we are seeing. And his crimes went Trump. overt, by the way. They were covert in exactly. a way that Trump's aren't. And so one of the things I think with this is that when I look at American history, what I see is 
a country that at many times has been much more civilizationally unstable than we are now, has had much more fracture, has had much more tension. But right now when we talk about that tension, what we're often really talking about is politics itself. It isn't that so many people are out on yep. the streets. It isn't – not that we never have that, but 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 it isn't that we're having so much political violence. It isn't that we are seeing all these political assassinations. It is that our politics has become fragile even at a moment when our country itself doesn't seem objectively all that fragile. And, and I wonder sometimes – my thought experiment sometimes is what if we had this political system in that era, right? What if we had the system right. we have right. now in 1960? Would we have made it through the 1960s? I mean I agree with you and, and that's why – I mean it's funny because I feel like I, I, I often am challenged from the other side of this, right? Which is that when I say it talks, you know what? We need to remember, I say this in the context of an argument I make about the causes of populism in the book, in which, um, and, and I hope we have occasion to talk about that as well, I defend the economic causes, which I think actually Vox has sometimes dismissed a little bit in its Yeah, writing. we can talk about that. But I also obviously think that there's important cultural causes, right? That in in a country like, like Germany and many other European countries, there was this deeply mono-ethnic, monocultural conception of who really belongs in the nation in, in 1950, 1955. There was always a little fictional, right? Actually, all Italians don't descend in a straightforward way from the same ethnic group, but that's how people thought about it. And it made it very obvious that somebody who is brown or black or somebody who is Muslim or Hindu or for that matter Jewish doesn't belong, right? Now, I think actually those societies have come a, a somewhat long way in overcoming that. You can see that in legal changes, the straightforward law of citizenship now makes it possible for immigrants and their children to be German citizens. Otherwise, I wouldn't be a German citizen. I'm also an American citizen, by the way. Um, the the cultural notions have changed. And if you'd like to hear more about how Yasha became an American citizen, you should listen to our previous podcast where you told a very moving story about Absolutely, that. Absolutely. Thank you. A lot of people have embraced that culturally, right? But there's also a very strong reaction against that, which, by the way, in some senses, isn't that surprising. Because I think we underestimate to what degree the lack of equality gave people something, right? If you weren't the richest guy in the country, if you weren't the most educated guy in the country, if you didn't get the most social respect... It was really tempting to say, well, at least I'm better than people outside the country. At least I'm better than that immigrant over there. Well, thankfully now that immigrant or his kid or his grandkid might be your boss or might be a politician, right? And I celebrate that, but it shouldn't surprise us that people might look at that and say, hey, hang on a second, someone's being taken away from me, right? Now, the United States is both similar and different, right? It's different than we've always been a multi-ethnic society, but it's similar in that, and and, and, and this, is, this is getting back to your point, we've actually come a long way in overcoming right? That it is better to be a member of an ethnic minority today than 20 or 40 or 60 years ago. Now, I often get the challenge of saying, no, that's not true. You know, actually, uh, economically and in all of these different kinds of ways, you know, our country is still really unjust. And how can you say things are better, right? And I'm on your side of that. I think things are unjust. We've got to fight against those injustices. We've got to be upfront about all of the ways in which those injustices exist. And I think on that, Vox does, does a great job often. Um, but things are clearly better on, on income, even on things like, like police violence than they were 20 or 40 or 60 years ago. And the evidence on that is very, very clear, right? So let's celebrate that, right? We should see that America is capable of improvement. And when you look at the amount of social consensus you have on some things today, it is striking. There's a great question that Pew asks uh, in lots of different countries about, do you think, not diversity, do you think more diversity is a good thing for your country? In all European societies, there's a clear majority, no. In the United States, most people say yes. 
More diversity is a good thing for the United States. A majority of Americans actually believe that. So yes, underlying in society, I think there's reasons for real optimism. And there's reasons to think that we're not as divided as we might think. But if we have a political system that allows someone, political entrepreneur, to split us into these deeply tribal groups and then to exploit that split into an attack on the rules we need to live with each other, that's really dangerous. And let me put this this way. If you have deep disagreements, but you agree to a set of rules by which those disagreements can be managed and remedied, you're probably going to survive as a society. If we say, I deeply disagree with you, I think you are wicked, but I'm committed to a certain process by which we figure those disagreements out. Now, that may be unjust because that may entail not challenging slavery enough. I'm not saying that this is, I'm not saying that American politics was better then, but it does mean that it's more likely to be stable. If you have a moment in which you say, hey, perhaps our disagreements aren't as deep as they were in 1964 about civil rights. But you know what? They feel deep enough to me that I don't want to be governed by you. And if you win, as happened in, in North Carolina, the gubernatorial elections by a few thousand votes, I'm going to rewrite your job description so that you don't actually get to do the real job that the governor has always done in our state. Then I'm very worried about what that's going to do to our ability to keep the society together. Have you read the book Finite and Infinite Games? I have not. So it's a weird book. Uh, and this will connect, I promise. But it's by a guy named James Carse. Uh, who I believe is a religion scholar. And it's a book that is very influential in the tech world. Um, I became aware of it listening to tech podcasts, but it's a, it's a favorite book of Stuart Brand, of the Whole Earth Catalog, oh, and a lot yeah. of these folks. And the idea of the book is that there are two kinds of games. There are finite games, which are, you know, punctuated, they have a beginning and an end, etc. And they're infinite games. Uh, games where the, the point of the game is not to win. The point of the game is that everybody gets to keep playing. And it's a book that, when I was reading it, for a lot of time I was, reading, I was just like, this is weird. This is a peculiar piece of work. And then it just sticks in your head. It's like a it's like a like an earworm of a book. And one of the things I, I think about when you talk when when you discuss this part is that there is a real question of whether you see democracy, of whether you see American politics or any country's politics as a finite or an infinite game. Whether you say the point is to win right now. Right. It right. is to get this bill passed yep. and this bill. And by the way, these are often life or death things. Yep. Do you go to war in Iraq? Do you pass or do you repeal Obamacare? I mean, the idea that you should treat these as beyond um, – as having consequences that you really, really cannot simply accept is a moral and rational idea. But if you elevate everything to that level and you begin breaching debt ceilings and shutting on the government and, you know, all the different things, you know, taken to the streets with violence, right? You can go all the way up on this. Then your system becomes a finite game and at some point it ends, yeah, yeah. right? The, the, exactly. the game ends. And I do think a real struggle right now, particularly as the parties become further apart and so the stakes become legitimately higher, right? As they become more ideologically yeah, polarized, yeah. the other party is further away from you and scarier because it wants to do more things you disagree with. Absolutely. There is a real tendency to treat American politics as a finite game and to say when you're thinking about your representatives, the people mm. who are allied with you – if you allow this to happen, if you don't use everything you can, shutting down the government, breaching the debt, whatever it might be, if you don't go all the way to the edge, yeah, yeah. well, then what are you talking about? How are you? How can you possibly say you support me if you're going to 
say, well, I didn't have the votes, so I just couldn't pass that. That that legitimacy of being able to say, well, in the rules of the game, I didn't have the votes. I'd like to win more votes next time, but but we all need to keep playing the game because America is important and the, the continuity of the system is important. That is a an understanding that I wonder if it's not breaking down. Now, I can go both ways. I can say, well, in the past, it's broken down more. There Again, there was violence in the streets much more often in the 20th century. I'm not even talking about the 19th than there is now. But I, I do see a, particularly on the Republican side, but increasing on the Democratic side too, a procedural escalation where losing is not an option. Where like losing is illegitimate. Yeah. And it's like if your side loses, it's just because they didn't try hard enough and they weren't willing to be tactically ruthless enough. And and the end point of that kind of logic of escalation seems systemically disastrous to me. So let me say a few things, right? I mean, one is I, I don't know how important the question of our institutions at unique threat at the moment is, right? Because, well, they're not at unique threat. They certainly were close to and in many ways beyond breaking point during the Civil War, right? Now, I don't know that that's how deflationary an account that is, right? I mean, the, my, one it's of my favorite... It's a contextualizing account. It's a contextualizing account. But, you know, one of my favorite reader emails I've ever gotten was somebody who's saying, oh, you really exaggerate. I mean, the worst thing, in the worst case scenario, we'll go back to the Middle Ages. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, I mean, fair enough. But, sure. but you know, if we go back to, to something like the bloodshed and the conflict and, and, and the deprivation of liberty as well that we had, and in the era of a civil war, that's plenty bad for me, even if it's not worse than that, right? I mean, the other thing I want to say is, you know, I think not just me, but some of the other people in this sort of discourse are sometimes accused of uh, what Jedediah Purdy has nicely called sort of norm core, you know, of sort of being, and I, I think he doesn't mean it sort of too too dismissively, but but of being sort of overly obsessed with these norms and so on, right? Um, and, Wait, he's termed that norm core? Yeah. That's very clever. Very good. Um, and, you know, I think there can be an obsession with them that's unhelpful in the sense that if you are facing slavery, then it's probably fine to break some of the norms of your political system. It's normatively justified, right? So I'm not talking about these norms because I think they are the most important thing in the world in all circumstances. I'm talking about these norms right now because that is the biggest threat that's happening. If, if there was a credible presidential candidate running, you know, not threatening to jail his political opponent, not threatening to interfere in the uh, independent operation of the Department of Justice, but saying, I'm going to pass a slavery law and we're going to be able to take X or Y group, you know, hostage, I would say, you know what, perhaps we need to break the political norms in order to stop that from happening, right? But what the threat to our institutions right now is, is the breaking of political norms and the core political norm is exactly what you identify as an infinite game rather than a, a limited game, was the term? Finite. The, a finite game, which is to say, when a liberal democracy, when the institutions of a liberal democracy works, you say, not I like my opponent and we're friends and we go to dinner together. I know there's people who describe, you know, the Congress, you know, we used to be friends. Well, that's nice. That's, that doesn't matter. You can think that your opponent is an asshole. You can think that they're bad. You can think that it's incredibly important that you win and they lose. But for a democracy to function, this is an empirical claim, for a democracy to function over time, you've got to accept to be ruled by them if they win. Perhaps in some situations it's okay to say, I don't accept to be ruled by them because they want to take slaves, right? But so let me ask but, you about... But, but if, you you no longer, if you no longer accept 
that we have a way of settling who gets to rule. And it is an election. And that allows me in four years to win on this incredibly important issue if I've lost this time around. Then our institutions are at a danger that is very real. And that I think is with a possible exception of, well, of, of with, with the actual exception of the civil war and the, and the split between the states, it is, I think, unique in American history. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. There are a million bad ways to start your morning off. The no coffee traffic jam. The soggy morning jog. The why is the dog taking so long? Just go already walk. But you can unleash your ideal day with a perfect shower using Method hair care products. Designed with high quality ingredients, Method's new range of shampoos and conditioners will give your hair undeniable softness and shine. And hey, if you're a night shower kind of person, that's great too. Try pure peace infused with peony, rose water, and quinoa protein. Or Simply Nourish, crafted with coconut, rice milk, and shea butter. Or Daily Zen, made with cucumber, seaweed, and green tea. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Shop methodproducts.com. How you draw these distinctions is really I think it's interesting and it's and it's hard. So, you know, something you've said a couple of times here is that, well, look, we can all agree that slavery is too far, right? Slavery is that that's worth blowing up the system for. But, you know, the chief of staff of the president of the United States came out recently and said, sure, a shame that all those leaders were so bad at compromising that we had a civil war. We should have just dealt with that another way. And, you know, in in the present day, I think you often have issues that people really, really struggle with the question of, well, you know what, is this one big enough to really go to the mat over? So uh, a couple examples here. I think when you're talking about marginal tax rates, right? most of us agree. And by the way, not always the Republican Party. They would have reached the debt ceiling over it. But, but I think a lot of people agree that marginal tax rates are not like a – that one's within the boundaries of normal politics. But what about when you're talking about deporting dreamers? That is, you're irrevocably going to ruin people's lives, like hundreds of thousands or even up to millions. Um, or what about health care? So, you know, years ago when the Affordable Care Act was passing, at the end, when Joe Lieberman decided to go back on a bunch of his words and, you know, blow the thing up so it could enough a public option or a Medicare buy-in, right, right. I said that, you know, this is a guy who's comfortable letting a lot of people die to settle old political scores. And I got a lot of pushback on that, and, and I understand it. And something I've thought a lot about in the aftermath is something Ross Douth had said to me, which is – or wrote about me, which is, you know, sort of whether or not you think that's true, whether or not you buy the data that health insurance actually saves lives, which people on the right doubt in ways I find very unpersuasive, that waving the bloody shirt in politics, sort of facing up to the stakes of the game – not even – I shouldn't call it the game – facing up to the stakes of these decisions – 
it can make the system ungovernable. It, it brings you very quickly into that finite And, and, and Ross Douglas would, would point that out about abortion, right? He, Which is, I, I, I grew up yes. without any religion and so on. This is a relatively alien claim to Absolutely. me. But if you really believe mm-hmm. that, as he does. that, as he does, that a fetus is a human life, yep. that, is, that is hard to deal with. Yep. Right? And so this is a hard space. I, I, I am, on the one hand, I have institutional biases myself. I, I tend to be on the side of like, let's treat American politics as an infinite game because I do think over the arc of our country, we've gotten better. That's part of my argument here today. But on the other hand, I do find the moral logic of some of these claims, like the, the sort of easy for you to say is a powerful logic. But, but, but here again, and I know I'm sort of, you know, I, I sound like the worst kind of philosophers, you know, here's a distinction, there's a distinction, you know. But I do think we have to keep two things apart, right? Which is the empirical description of what situation are we in and how dangerous it is. And my book has definitely elements that go beyond that, but, but at core it is empirically trying to describe the phenomenon and what led up to it and what we can do about it, right? Um, so let's distinguish that from a normative element, which is, you know, what should you do, right? You can look at the current situation and say, you know what, if you're on on, on the right, I'm going to try and be sympathetic to voters of Donald Trump, which I don't find easy to do, but but I'm going to try. You say, you know what, actually, they, you know, have been so screwed over by the political system and the political class is so unresponsive all of the time that, you know what, they have good reason to vote for somebody who's just going to break it all up, right? Perhaps that's right. Perhaps a claim that I'd have to think about whether I agree with, but that certainly seems more plausible to me, it's fair to say, you know what, if they're trying to deport people who were brought here as children who in every sense other than their legal status are Americans and you're trying to to deprive them from this country and destroy their lives out of pettiness and so on, then perhaps that does justify breaking a whole bunch of political norms, right? Let's let's say that, that both of those claims are true for a moment, right? You can still look at that as a social scientist and say, well, if people on the right are willing to break the political norms for their reasons, and now people on the left are also willing to break the norms for reasons that I personally find more persuasive, you're in for trouble in terms of whether you predict that the system is going to survive, right? So look, now I think the way to negotiate that, if you have a real stake in the survival of a system, right, now I'm putting my normative head on, if you have a real stake in the survival of a system, but you also have a real stake, for example, in the lives of dreamers not being wrecked, then I think you'll try and negotiate those two things together. And that's a very difficult dance. Uh, and I think the answer is, for example, that certain forms of civil disobedience are absolutely fine and legitimate. And this is the classical justification of the kinds of circumstances in which, in a generally legitimate state, you can ratchet up opposition to unjust elements of it, right? Um, It is, you know, to engage in civil disobedience, which does include breaking the law, which I think can be justified under those kinds of circumstances. I don't think it's helpful to also say, well, you know what, perhaps democracy isn't working and we should turn against that. And what I see more and more is that happening, much, much, much more so on the right and in certain small ways, sometimes on the left as well. So let's go into some of the reasons you do see that happening because a lot of the book is breaking down why people are becoming discontented with democracy. And one of the first you go through, which was interesting to me because I had not heard it as much in your analysis before, is that these liberal democratic systems are becoming increasingly undemocratic in their true functioning. That they are the province of technocratic elites who are negotiating trade deals in closed rooms and, you know, running the FEC and the FCC and the Supreme Court and the Federal Reserve. 
And that as democracies in these countries become more complex, the amount that citizens can engage in uh, and, 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 and the amount that their voices matter reduces. And, and that begins to build resentment against the system. Is that a, a reasonable summation yep. of the argument? So let me ask you about something on this that I struggle with. That feels true to me. Mm-hmm. And then I look at what are the things people don't like the most. They hate Congress, which is much more democratic, small d democratic, than, say, the Supreme Court, which they like more. They love the military, right? The military is the thing that everybody in America, anyway, agrees on. Yeah, yeah. You know, 73% approval rating, whereas anything that you can actually – you know, anything that is subject to more accountable approaches is, is much lower. The media has become unbelievably more transparent and open and kind of movable uh, and competitive in the past, say, 30 years. Its approval ratings have nosedived. On the one hand, what you're saying feels true to me. And on the other hand, it is hard for me to look at the approval ratings of these institutions and say the ones people like are more democratic and the ones they don't like are the less democratic ones. I wouldn't put it that way either. And I think you've made the point very astutely in the past on the podcast that, you know, in some ways, you know, one of the problems of American politics is weak parties and strong partisanship. And one of the ways that you might actually fix that is to have in certain ways, uh, a less democratic primary process, right? Um, so I think I, I think there's sort of good objections there. But I do think that people's anger is in part motivated by that. And there's two elements of that. So, 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 so I do want to add a little bit to your great summary of that part of the book, which is that on the one side, one element of what you're seeing is simply that institutions like Congress are unpopular, not because they're so democratic, but because they're so unresponsive, Right? People are really angry at the role that money plays in our politics. They're really angry at the revolving, revolving door between lobbyists and legislators. They're really angry about the fact that congressmen, for example, it's a little difficult to pin down, but spent about 50% of their time dialing for cash, going to fundraisers, hanging out with lobbyists. And so that by the time that they go to the floor of the House to vote on a bill, they don't have to do this sort of cliched, evil guy from a bad Hollywood movie where they know that this bill is, you know, bad for a lot of Americans and they're going to vote sorry, for it anyway because they need to get the campaign contributions. By the time they go to vote on the bill, by and large, they've been influenced by their friends and by their acquaintances and by the guys who write their checks and actually believe in this bill, right? Now, I think Americans are very aware of this. And when the approval ratings of Congress are so low, I think it is because they feel it's not a democratic institution. It's not translating the views into public policy. So that's one side of it. That side is both easy and difficult to solve, which is to say that it's really easy in principle to know what to do about it. It's really hard to get the political buy-in and get the majorities you need in order to fix it. But I don't feel a deep, I'm not deep down torn about it, right? I, I, I'm very happy to regulate campaign finance in a serious way. I'm very happy to shut the revolving door between lobbies and legislators. Now there's good objections there and so on, but, but I think clearly there's stuff that needs to be fixed there. The other side is more complicated, and that is that not only has Congress become less responsive to what people actually want to do, but also the role of Congress has become limited in big ways, right? So you've had the rise of Supreme Courts that have more and more power in most countries, and arguably even in the states, has played a bigger and bigger role in our national life. You have a rise of independent central banks that have vastly more power than they used to be. Um, you have a rise of bureaucratic institutions like, say, the EPA and the Consumer Protection Bureau. Um, you have a rise of trade treaties. You have a rise of international organizations. Now, some of these things 
are quite unpopular, at least among parts of the population. Yes, the Supreme Court has higher approval ratings than Congress. But if you want to understand the willingness of a lot of more traditional Republicans to go along with Donald Trump, even though they didn't like him at the beginning, we all know that the Supreme Court and the empty seat on the Supreme Court, which shouldn't have been empty, played a big role in that, right? There are other institutions that may be more popular among some people. I personally think that a lot of these institutions, and this makes this a much deeper dilemma, are doing good jobs, right? I like the Consumer Protection Bureau. I think it's doing an excellent job. But when you look at all of these things taken together, people have a feeling that, you know what, it doesn't really matter what I say. These guys do whatever they want anyway. So you know what? Let's shake things up. I need somebody who says, I'm your voice, and I'm going to return power to the people. So one of the things I wonder about this, have you read the book Stealth Democracy? You're going to keep asking me whether I've read various books, and I'm going to say no. <laughs> yeah, that, well, now you're making me look like an asshole. You know, no, no, that's fine. I love it's the, a political I, science I, I, book. I spoke to a, to a French novelist about a year ago, and he made a great point about, about France, and I think it applies somewhat more broadly to Europe, and this is going to be you know, a very sweeping claim that um, you know, a French intellectual will never tell you oh, you know, I just read this book. Unless it was just published, they'll always say, oh, you know, I was just rereading this book. <laughs> and one of the things I love about America is that it is actually a place of less intellectual pretension. So I'm happy to admit to not having read all of these books you're asking me about. <laughs> um, I, I will take that as a compliment on behalf of America. Uh, so the reason I bring it up is that I think there's a really important question you're bringing up here, which is what causes people to turn against institutions? Yep. What are the conditions in which they look at an institution and they say, that institution is not representing me anymore? Yep. Because I actually think that it's important sometimes to see that impulse as then looking for its rationalizations. They don't like what's happening institution, and so then they begin looking for, well, why is it happening? I, I'm sure this happens to you too. I, I give a lot of talks on politics at colleges and, and something. And one thing I would say that does happen a lot is people way overestimate the degree to which money is keeping the things they want from happening from mm -hmm. happening, right? Mm -hmm. Money is money yep. in politics is bad. I would regulate it too. But it's like a villain we can all agree on, even yeah, yeah. if we can't seem to change it. Anyway, the, the thesis of this book, Stealth Democracy, which I've has stuck with me for a couple of years now is that people people don't have strong and stable views on policy. Uh, if you begin to ask them about policy and dig into their policy views, they're pretty changeable. If you kind of say in a poll question, well, are you sure? About 20% of people would be like, actually, I'm not sure. I'm going right, to change right. my mind on that. But what they have very strong views on is process. Mm -hmm. So when they see a lot of fighting, when they see uh, bitterness, when they see paralysis, when they see conflict— they tend to take that as a sign of corruption, that they have an, an, an intuition that if people were kind of governing on their behalf, if they were just using common sense and doing what's right for the country, that there wouldn't be all this fight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And that's why there's this appeal of, you know, the businessman is coming and saying, we're just going to deal with this like we do in a business. So there's actually a, a lack of belief, as strange as it sounds, in the depth of the disagreements. And I bring that up in this context because – one of the things I, I think to myself when I hear your narrative on this is that on the one hand, you're clearly right that we have a much larger alphabet soup of agencies that now regulate different parts of American life. On the other hand, again, go back 50 or 60 years when I think within this view, there was less anger at democracy in the way that we're talking about. And the thing itself was just much less democratic. Um, fewer people were participating. You had – like 
we actually weren't even choosing as voters who the political parties nominated for president. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like that that even wasn't up to us. Uh, that was being dealt with in back rooms at a convention somewhere. And I don't quite know what to make of that sometimes. I, I On the one hand, you're completely right that people are looking at this and say, it's not representing me. This is not, like my voice is not being heard. On the other hand, their voices really weren't being heard, you know, if you go back four or five decades. And there was less anger over it. And I wonder sometimes whether, and this is something that you do weigh in the book, whether one, more transparency in the media, so you see a lot more of the conflict and yeah, see yeah, more yeah. of the sausage being made, but also just broader changes in, in the society have made people angrier and that anger is looking for justifications when at other points, it was less democratic, but people were happy with the outcomes, the economy was doing better, whatever. And so they were more willing to cede power to, to, to the system. So I think what's happened is that not all institutions in society or primaries are a good example of a way in which our society has become more democratic. Well, it's a little anomalous when you look around the world. Um, but by and large, I do think that as the issues we have to solve have become more complex, we have had less of a voice as citizens, right? Think of something, and, and often for good reason, think of something like climate change. In order to deal with climate change, we need robust action coordinated among some 200 states around the world. How on earth are we going to do that without having backroom deals? And how on earth are we going to do that without you or me feeling that we don't have a real voice in what happened there, right? So I think there's good reasons, deep reasons, why people do feel more disempowered in, in, in their voice. At the same time, the way that we often dealt with that is to radically increase transparency. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that that somehow happens stops the worst things from happening, which perhaps it does in limited circumstances, but mostly it just allows people to see what's happening and get a lot more angry about it, right? I mean, I thought that a little bit when you think of the um, British expenses, uh, expenses scandal a couple of years ago. There was a big scandal in, in Parliament in Britain because, you know, various uh, members of Parliament had claimed expenses for various things, and there was an incredible anger about it. But from the outside, my impression was actually to some degree wow, this, is, this system is cleaner than I thought. I mean, you know, people got in trouble for, you know, um, I mean, there's some egregious cases, but by and large, they got in trouble for sort of mistakenly claiming a sort of DVD for £7.99, right? I mean, it really actually was small fish. The same thing for WikiLeaks. I mean, WikiLeaks gives this impression of, oh my yeah. God, there's all these secrets. I mean, oh my God, did I imagine that worse things were going on at the heart of the American government than the things you see in WikiLeaks. There's some bad things in there. But by and large, it's sort of, you know, an ambassador dishing the, you know, dishing out what he thinks about people and actually ways that make perfect sense, right? Mm -hmm. So so I agree with you that the weird thing is that people, the system has become a little less responsive, but it's become much more transparent. And the mixture of that is really bad. The important thing, though, is that it does depend on background conditions. And one of the background conditions is, do people feel that the system actually delivers on them? So you said it's about how much do people fight. People always fought in political systems, but now they're fighting a little more. And you're saying, hey, these people are fighting all the time and I don't get anything out of it. So perhaps that's a good pivot to talk a little bit about the economic side, right? Because I do think one fundamental transformation in America that we haven't talked about is that from 1935 to 1960, the living standard of the average American doubled. But from 96 to 1985, it doubled again. And since 1985, it's been stagnant. And that does mean that people used to say, hey, I'm doing so much better. My kids are going to do so much better. Perhaps, like, I'm not being asked day to day, you know, how the senator should vote. 
know, perhaps there's a lot of weird quibbles, you know, squabbles going on in Congress. But, you know, it's delivering. It's fine. And now people say, hey, guys, I'm suffering here. I haven't done better for 30 years. I'm really scared of the future. And you assholes are squabbling about this all the time and you don't want to listen to me anyway? Fuck that. Let's blow it up. So this is a this is a hard part of the debate for me because it's one of these places where I agree with the grievance and am, uh, as you sort of intimated, less persuaded of it as a causal mechanism. And, and I think the way you put it helps explain why. That period you talked about, the, say, roughly the 40s, right, the post-war period to the 80s. We were talking about this earlier. It's a period of insane social fracture. I mean, it's a period where you have a lot more political violence in the period we're in right now. It's a period where a lot more people are attracted to communism. I mean, you, you have a real, you have a red scare in that era. It's a period where, like, the, the ideological boundaries on the debate begin to fall. That on, on one hand, one, one thing that does happen around that prosperity is people begin feeling confident making claims about, you know, what they what they should be able to get, both rights if you're a marginalized group or um, even if you're not, you know, you think of college students uh, during that period, like ideas of genuine, like, uh, systemic upheaval. And it's one one reason I'm I'm a little skeptical that I, I don't see when I look back the kind of stability in the system that we're talking about here. What I see is, I mean, a political system that is less partisan and less polarized and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and certainly a politics and a country that is delivering better. But the idea that people are— oh, On some things like the economy, because as we're talking about, like economy, on other right. things, it really wasn't But I just—the idea that that is making people—the idea that it is calming to the system, I look back and I see actually a period of real disquiet, that in, in some ways all that helped feed a period where America made huge strides forward, but they were very, very difficult— um, as opposed to it being a period when there was actually a lot more consensus. Well, but that's why I think it's helpful to think about the different dimensions and not to say, you know, the thing that really frustrates me about this debate is that so often it's framed around, is it the culture or is it, you know, is it about culture and race and so on, or is it about the economy? And it's just the important things in life are never just one thing. <laughs> There's no reason to think that it's either one or the other, right? Now, what you had in the 1960s in the United States was a very deep division around things like civil rights, but actually a relatively consensual politics around the economy, right? I think at the moment, um, we have less deep divisions actually around, around the cultural and the race piece of it, though still pretty deep ones, less deep than the 60s, but pretty deep, and a really deeply suited anger and a really deeply seated ideological polarization around the economy. And I think once you take those two things together, that's a real problem, right? The other thing is obviously, which is perverse, but that the people who were aggrieved in the 50s and 60s were people who didn't have a ton of political power, which was deeply unjust, but also limited their ability to blow up the system. Now the people who are aggrieved, middle-class white men, have a ton of political power. And that makes it much easier for them to blow up the system. That I think is a, a huge point here. So to go back though to, to I think part of the part of what you're you're saying here, which is that look, there is a simplistic argument that it's one or the other, and I, I agree with that. I do think though that there's also a simplistic argument that it is. I don't know what's the way to put this. Um, and and we can leave my dithering on this in the in the recording because I think this is tricky. Uh, 
here's the way I would, here's the way I think about it and why I have trouble with it. To, to use an example from your book, you have a section in the book on the economy and you have a section on identity. When you're talking about the economy, you start getting into a data chase that other people do, obviously, and that feels to me like overfitting. So there's this whole thing where, look, if you just look at the straightforward predictions you would make, so people whose incomes are lower are more supportive of Trump. It's like, well, okay, no. Um, and then it's like people who are just declining. It's, no, it's like, no, what you got to do is you got to like see what their expectations for the future are or do they live in a community where there's more mortality, but obviously like a white community, not a multi-ethnic. And you start going down a list where- No, it's not I'd that be, complicated. But I, I think it kind of, well, I, I think it is complicated. I've, and I've And using the exact same studies you are, I think that- the predictions one would have made are not holding. You have to find things that are, are, are more complex. Whereas then when you go into the next chapter, it's like people who don't like immigrants vote for Donald Trump. People who have higher levels of racial resentment, they vote for Donald Trump. It's not to say that economic anxiety doesn't play any role here at all because, you know, I'm, I, I'm sure it does. But it is the question of how do you end up filtering economic anxiety? Who does it go towards? What happens with it? And then, you know, is it really economic anxiety in the end at all? Or is it a way that you understand your and your discomfort with where the country is going? I just think it's hard. And I think it's hard specifically for the reason that it calls into question whether fixing the economic anxiety would fix the feeling. A good example of this, because here I think is a prediction that would goes very straightforwardly. I think that if you take the economic anxiety thesis seriously, you would say, Okay, these voters are not going to be happy until their communities change, right? If you're talking about, say, the opioid crisis, right, which is a big thing people talk about after the election, they're not going to be happy until people in their communities stop dying in these, in these kinds of numbers from opioids. In fact, Donald Trump gets elected and the economic perceptions of Republicans change overnight. They change before he takes office. Nothing has changed. The economy hasn't changed. Their conditions haven't changed. The opioid crisis hasn't changed. But their perception of what is of what the economy is doing, of how good their condition is, jumps dramatically, and it stays there. Even though the trends we're watching are basically just the trends we saw in 2016. And that's a prediction that makes me think that, or, or that's an outcome that makes me think that some of that economic feeling is downstream from a question of of whether my tribe is holding power. That it is that instead of it being the causal mechanism, partially it's the way people explain their feelings. And so that if you would let's say Hillary Clinton had gotten into office and the exact same economic performance had happened, you would have seen none of that change. And that that makes me wonder whether or not you can really solve some of these problems just by delivering more economic, more inclusive economic growth. So, so I'm, I'm really unpersuaded by, by 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 the last point you made. I mean, the other point, the other points are much more serious sort of challenge, and I'll try and respond to that. But, you know, I mean, voters have really v weird ways in which they respond with outside expectation to the victory of a favorite political candidate. That is the case across contexts, on a whole bunch of different dimensions. I mean. You know, people on the left probably had hugely outside expectations for what the election of Barack Obama would do for uh, racial equality and race relations in this country, right? And voters of Donald Trump had hugely outside expectations for reasons that go deeper than than, than our 
wrong expectations with, with Obama about what he was going to do for them economically and so on. I, I sort of think that's a little bit neither here nor there. But, but, but let me respond to a sort of substance of this point, right? What should our expectation have been? You see, I, perhaps to me, those arguments against the economy mattering are unpersuasive because I just started from a different baseline assumption. I think it is really simplistic to think if the economy matters, it's got to be the case that you just look at a breakdown of wages and that's going to predict who votes for Donald Trump. So that the poor people vote for Donald Trump and the rich people vote for Hillary Clinton. That's the assumption that seems to be the baseline in a lot of that reporting on Vox and a lot of political science studies. And I just think it's 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 a really unpersuasive assumption for a whole bunch of reasons. When you look at the literature, and I'm, this is a very specific comparison, I'm not comparing populist to fascist, which is unhelpful. I'm not comparing Donald Trump to certain people in, 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 in mid-20th century Europe. But... But when you look at the causes of the rise of fascism, it was always the declining middle and lower middle class, but not the lower class so much, right? So if you ran that analysis, if we had that data for those societies, most historians would say you wouldn't find a straightforward correlation either, right? So that's one way of thinking about this. Another way of thinking about this is, um, do we ask the same question about race? Do we say, well, if rising diversity and a rebellion against that was really the reason why people voted for Donald Trump, then even among just white people, the vote for Donald Trump should be especially high where we are sitting right now in Washington, D.C., should be especially high in New York City, should be especially high in Wait, California. I'm sorry, say the, say the underlying idea here again. So the idea here is that there should be this straightforward one-to-one correlation between the phenomenon is especially strong here and the people who experience the phenomenon most strongly should therefore be voting that way. So on the economy, if you're really poor, you're going to have more, quote-unquote, economic anxiety, you're going to vote for Trump. What would that mean applied to the cultural side of the argument? It would mean that we should assume that if you live in a place that has tons of immigrants and you're white, then you should be much more likely to vote for the populist because you have the strongest reason to react against your community being a minority and there being change and so on and so forth. We don't make that assumption. And if we did make the assumption, we would easily dispatch the cultural argument because it's not true that white people in Manhattan are especially likely to vote for Donald Trump. Oh, and now, we think that's a crazy assumption. But see, now this one, I think, is the, the an assumption that doesn't make sense. And, and, and so let me try but to the separate But the make sense in the right way, in the same way. No, so so I don't actually agree with that. But, but I do think this is interesting, which is why I want to hold here for a second. So... What I would say would be the assumption is that if you believe the cultural anxiety argument, you believe that there's a, a kind of demographic anxiety, that people who choose to not live in diverse places would be much more upset about diversity. That if you are somebody who has not wanted to live in a highly multicultural city, then turn on TV every day and seeing a black president, that may not be great for you. You may not be super stoked about that. That uh, And this is actually something you say in your book. We're not, yeah, we're I not agree arguing. With that. Exactly. I agree with that. But I'm just saying to me, that is actually the straightforward prediction. But, but okay, so now let me tell you the straightforward prediction about the economy. Yeah. Right? Which is that Republicans have always on average been richer than Democrats. So it'd be crazy if suddenly that switched just in one election. Right, That when they talk to people, as when I did reporting about the refugee uh, crisis in Germany, a lot of people said, you know, they're taking stuff away from us and I'm really worried about my pension and what's going to happen to me. And I ask them, well, how are you doing economically? And they say, oh, no, I'm doing fine for now. Right? There's a very clear pattern. And it's not just a pattern in the United States. It's a pattern. This is probably the, the one 
explanatory factor that is virtually the case across any country that has some form of populist politics. That the populists have their strongest supporters in more rural areas, in less affluent areas, in areas with less recent economic investment, in areas where the share of jobs that might be automated, according to economists, is higher. They are people in parts of the country that are economically stagnant and that feel aggrieved about the fact that people in the big cities are doing well, and they are not. And this is and and this is something that 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 I think clearly has an economic dimension. The fact that Donald Trump won two thirds of American counties, but only a little over one third of America's GDP, is really striking. Now, obviously, it intersects with the cultural explanation, and the form it takes is often cultural. And one of the ways of thinking about that is that, you know, the creation of an equal multi-ethnic society is really hard. And when people are feeling that, you know what, my life's going great. I didn't expect to have all the things I have today, right? And you know what, now this immigrant comes in and he's doing great as well. Good for him. When they start to feel like, you know what, it's not that I'm the poorest guy in the country, but... I really am struggling and I'm afraid of what's going to happen and I feel like things are being taken away from me. Wait, and now my boss is an immigrant? That guy over there is an immigrant? I see how much California, New York is changing and I'm afraid that where I am in Iowa is going to go the same way. You know, let's rebel against them, right? So I think you can only understand it when you look at these two things in conjunction. I I want to think about this. This is a problem with the podcast. You don't get to take 10 minutes and like, Going to reflect on this and come back, but we can we can the, play an but, ad or right, something. We can do an ad, then well, you know. But the question I have on this is because I actually agree now with the way you're framing it. I just don't agree that that is what people mean by economic anxiety, and not only that, but I don't agree that that would be that the kinds of feelings you're talking about here would get fixed by. GDP growth going up to 3.4% for an extended period of years. And in fact, not only do I not believe they would get fixed, I believe they literally didn't. We've had better GDP growth. 2015 was one of the highest years we've had on record in wages increasing. We were finally having some broad-based growth again, and that's the year Donald Trump begins to rise up. One of the tricky parts about this, and this is why I actually think it's helpful to think about the 20th century a little bit more, is, you know, who in the 20th century looks the most like Donald Trump? It's Nixon. And, you know, he runs the Southern Strategy. He has a law and order campaign. I mean, I'm not even talking here about the Watergate comparisons, which are, are, are a whole nother uh, set of symmetries, but but just the kind of... One of the great things that Donald Trump might do for us that finally will retire Watergate. <laughs> right, as exactly. As the go-to metaphor. Um, but, but I think that with Nixon, you get somebody who in his pre-Watergate incarnation is like, a, like the thinking man's Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I... I don't want to go like full full hog on how amazing the economy was at that moment. But I think that people properly understand that period as part of the great post-war expansion. In fact, the reason Nixon has this insane victory in 72 is because there is a very heavy expansion happening during that period. And yet people are voting for a very racially resentful candidate. And why are they doing it? Well, because they're you know seeing civil rights movements and urban riots and there, there's all kinds of things that are making them upset. And so – I think the place where I get off the boat here as somebody who who's covered economic issues in, in, in politics for a while is that there is always a lot of economic anxiety in the country because the economy is always – I mean we have never had a point of true total, you know, like abundance and we – 
there's always quite a lot of pain in the country. I mean, we have extreme poverty in this country all the time. I want for this explanation to work, to be able to match it to trends where I'm not having to go into this thing like, well, the, I, I really, really do not buy, for instance, the automation argument. The you know, I think the the research there where it's like, well, we've tried to track what states have automatable. I, I just think you're starting to get into there's so so many kinds of economic data you can choose that eventually you're going to be able to correlate some of them. That that to me, it's going way, way, way too far down the list of of, of what to get before you're getting something. Well, the automation thing, just to be clear on that, it's not that people think, oh my God, my job is going to get automated away and I know that my account, it, it's not that. It's just that auto, the share of jobs that might be automated away is a great proxy for how dynamic the economy in a particular part of a country is. Yeah, so I, that's, that's okay. why I just, anyway, don't, I, I just don't find it persuasive. But, but that's fine. Like other people can find that persuasive. I'm just saying that I... My issue here is sort of not that if you could wave away economic pain, right? If you could wave, if you could do something um, that would really get us to a point where everybody was feeling momentum in their county and everybody was feeling that the future would be way better than the past. I mean, look, like if you can make everything good enough, then yes, a lot would disappear. But I think within the boundaries of what you see in economic growth in politics, within what we've seen in the last hundred years of economic history, um, and what we've seen in the last 15 years of economic history, I just don't think the match is there. I think that if you solve the kinds of problems people are talking about with economic anxiety, if you solve the kind – if you put into place a kind of policies, if the Federal Reserve began targeting 3 percent inflation mm -hmm. and if tax policy became significantly more redistributive – and if you did a better job on housing policy, so it was easier to move to urban centers and, and you know, you didn't have to commute so far. I mean, I can go down the list, right? right, right. And, and you do this, I think, in a persuasive way in your book. I don't think it would have that much of an effect on this particular thing. And not only that, but this actually goes to this question of how the votes turn out. Because you, you were making, a, I think, a reasonable point that, well, look, people always expect a lot from their candidate. And the fact that their perceptions of the economy went way up when Trump came in, it, it doesn't, doesn't tell you anything. I, I don't agree, but I very much take that point. But I think another way, if we had Larry Bartel sitting here, what he would say, uh, the political scientist. We'll just be is, him. Hey, Larry. Hey, Larry. Is he would say, because uh, and I do think this is a, it's a challenge he's made to me before, and I, I, I do find it persuasive, is, you know, you don't need to explain anything here. The vote for Donald Trump looks basically exactly like the vote for Mitt Romney. If you just deleted the names, right, right. you wouldn't know anything that happened at all. So here we are like reaching backwards for all these explanations. And in fact, it's like a Republican ran and won. And, you know, like what, what do you guys have in this hour and a half discussion about anyway? And I mean, I, I don't fully buy that because I do think the question of why was Donald Trump appealing is an important question. But I do not look at the pattern of support for Donald Trump and see something that is fundamentally showing me like an, an economic upheaval. I see something that looks pretty normal. And I see a candidate who focused his appeal. What made his appeal different than other candidates like him was he was a little bit less conservative on economic issues and a whole lot more conservative on racial issues. And he was following a black president and he was known for being more intense on immigration than the other guys and also for being a birther. And I just don't know that if you jacked up economic growth within reasonable levels and got more redistributive, you would do anything about that. There's a lot in that. Um, well, that wasn't a concise, easy question. <laughs> no, it wasn't. A <laughs> um, so that's what's great about we, podcasts. We, we moved into the sort of we moved one into line radio conversation. Questions. You get interviewed on the first appearance. By the third, I'm just talking. <laughs> no, we're, 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 you know. So there's a few things I want to say here. Um, 
okay, let me start with, with one thought, right? Which is that I think part of what frustrates me about the, the larger debate about this is that I feel like people are measuring with slightly unequal yardsticks. There's no clean story on either side of this debate. There's no clean story about the economy, I buy that. But there's no clean story about immigration and cultural values either. But wasn't your One story of the striking on things? It's just like people don't like immigrants voted for Donald Trump? You, it was like, well, but, you say it was well, like 80, the, 20 but, in the book? But one of the fascinating things about it is that American views on multi-ethnic society, American views on immigration, American views on things like what I mentioned earlier, which is more diversity, have actually become more liberal, more, now I'm using liberal in different words, have become more tolerant over the last 10, 20, 30 years than they were previously. So there's a really weird puzzle there about why it is that at a time when Americans are actually more tolerant than they used to be, they voted for the least tolerant candidate in a very long time, right? So so, so that's not a simple story either. I agree that there's an element here which is weird, which is that Donald Trump, you know, had a very similar pattern of support than Mitt Romney did. And so perhaps there's actually not as much to explain as we'd want to say. But there the contrast with Richard Nixon is important. Because when Richard Nixon started to go against the basic rules and norms of our political system, after having won a giant election victory, the people on his side said, no, 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 no. You can't do that. And a lot of his supporters said, no, 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 you can't do that. Right? Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but I think a baseline trust that the political institutions are serving as well and that we get something out of them and that we don't want to tolerate somebody who's destroying them is an important part of that. So yes, Donald Trump had very similar patterns of political support to Mitt Romney and you might say, therefore, we don't have to explain anything. But I think that's exactly what needs to be explained. Why is it that somebody who's so much more extreme than Mitt Romney nevertheless manages to keep that... Um, coalition together. And part of the reason, obviously, is negative partisanship. And when you have to say, well, why is there such deep negative partisanship? And that obviously has a big cultural side. But I think it also has a side, again, of just feeling like the system isn't delivering for you. And it's a fault of the guys on the other side. And so you're just going to stick with your guy, even if he, you know, isn't exactly the kind of candidate you generally like. Right? I have a and question then, for you yeah. about that side of the Nixon question that goes uh -huh. to, to the illiberalism issue. Do you think that if Democrats had not controlled the House and the Senate, Watergate would have been taken seriously enough to remove Nixon from office? I'm not enough of a scholar of American history to, to tell you the answer to that. Um, I certainly think it would have been much, much, much harder. Um, and that is a heartening thought because if Democrats managed to take back the House or the Senate, and hopefully both in the midterm elections, um, there's obviously going to be a lot more serious investigation within Congress and it's going to be much harder for sort of not completely Trumpified Republicans to preserve some, some hallucination of political integrity without having to actually completely go on board to Trump, right? There's a lot of Republicans at the moment in Congress, not many of them, unfortunately, but a few who are basically managing to not quite be entirely in Trump's column without having to do any of the hard things, like actually going up against him straightforwardly, I think it's going to get harder when they're on committees which are led by Democrats and actually uncovering much more shocking things and so on. So that's one sort of little hopeful sign. Um, look, to your larger question, which is, I think, sort of a core of a question, right? That's the 10-minute that's the radio interview version of a question, which is, you know, 
is would a huge economic growth solve everything? There's two answers I have. One is right policy doesn't necessarily do that because I think that there are reasons that go beyond policy for why we could have such rapid growth in the past and why it might be harder to have such rapid growth today. So even if we institute override policy, we may not get there. Um, and that's, that's, that's a scary and pessimistic thought, which I take very seriously. The other question is, well, what if we somehow could wave a magic wand and suddenly people's incomes would double from generation to generation? Would that solve everything? No, it wouldn't solve everything. You would still have deep contestation around issues of identity. There would be lots of people who still would be upset about the fact that the last president was black and perhaps the next one might be as well, that they no longer have the kinds of um, status advantages that came with being a white Protestant in our society for a very long time and so on and so forth. Absolutely. But I think it would mitigate some of those conflicts. It would make them more manageable. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Another thing that is changing here is not just the way the economy works and the way politics works, but the way we learn about it. And you say that uh, people have oversimplified the conversation about social media. Yeah. That what is fundamental about what it has changed, it has tilted power more towards outsiders and away from insiders. And I'd like you to expand on that a bit because I think that's an important piece of this that is rarely talked about clearly. So let's go back to 1992. I'm going to overstate the case a little bit, but I think it's clarifying and say, you know what? In some ways, the structural conditions of communication in 1992 weren't so different to what they would have been two or 300 years previously. Now, that seems weird because obviously you could, you know, play the Olympics, you could play a news event live with, you know, crisp uh, picture and sound all around the world. That wasn't possible in the 18th century. But you had a few centers of communication, people who had vast capital and owned newspapers and publishing houses and radio stations and television stations. And in order to have a big voice, people either needed to be owners of those institutions or be granted a platform by these institutions. That made it much easier for political and economic elites to set, I know this is a term that I usually try to avoid mentioning, but you mentioned it a lot on the podcast, so I think listeners will know it, the Overton window, right? They could, they could help set what it is that, um, that is sort of part of ordinary discourse that's acceptable and what is outside of it. 
I think that ability of gatekeepers to set the contours of political debate has really been challenged in a fundamental way by the rise of the internet and of social media. So first you get the rise of the internet, which democratizes one-to-many communication. Suddenly anybody can make up a website, joeblogs.com or yashamung.com. I have a beautifully newly designed website. Go to it. But it's difficult to get people to come to it, right? I mean, you know, perhaps for Google, they might happen to stumble upon it because you're really writing about something they're interested in. Um, you know, there's some successful bloggers early in blogging that managed to, you know, get a real following, um, uh, as you well know as well. Hacks. But hacks. But, but, but that was a rare phenomenon, and even that was a somewhat limited platform, right? Well, then you have a rise of social media, which creates a shift to what I call many-to-many communication. So suddenly, if you're on a United Airlines flight and a guy in front of you is being, uh, as they say, reaccommodated, and you take a video of this and tweet it to your 100 followers, which is not a ton of people, but 10% of their followers retweeted and 10% of their followers retweeted, within a couple of hours, it might be seen by millions of people. Right? Now, what does that do? It doesn't necessarily do bad things. In a dictatorship, it makes it easier for the democratic opposition to make their arguments, to explain why liberal democracy is important, to point to the corruption of a dictator, to chronicle abuses. Right? Even in our society, it often empowers marginal voices. I and mean, that's one of the reasons why we have a whole bunch of fights around the status of minority groups at the moment, because it's easier for them to actually make their claims and press them. It's one of the reasons why the students at Parkland High have had such a in my mind, positive role in our debate about gun violence for the past few weeks. But it obviously also makes it easier for people who simply spread false information, for people who have hateful views, uh, to have a hearing and to organize themselves politically, to connect with each other. At a moment when that comes on top of the economic frustration that a lot of people feel, on top of the rebellion against an equal multi-ethnic society, in which is consuming large segments of our society, that becomes a very dangerous cocktail. And and that to me is a. When I think of things that have really changed here, I I, I think that's an important piece of it. And in this way, you were saying, you know, one of the real challenges here related to to the Bartels point is okay, like why does it all look the way it does? Why why are Romney and and, and Trump's patterns as similar as they are? And you sort of wave towards a negative partisanship. But but I see that there as being almost this conveyor belt of weaknesses in the system, which is, on the one hand, we now have media that is much better for outsider candidates than it has ever been before. Mm-hmm. But there used to be media, I mean, that was powerful for them. You know, you think about Father Coughlin with the the, the advent of radio in the, the early 20th century. So it isn't that you never had kind of outsider demagogues who developed big national followings. But even if you did, even if you got that done, um, and now it's probably easier to do than ever before, well, you still couldn't get into the party because you had to win the convention. And so you had people like Coughlin or um, Wallace or – And and by the way, even if you had that radio station, the other – uh, news media could ignore you. In a way, they can't now if you have 2 million followers on Twitter. So now you – are able to, to 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 get more attention, beginning with a niche audience. Mm-hmm. You are then able to leverage that attention into winning a a a, a small d democratic process, but one that only plays out among very intense supporters in primaries. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, so it isn't at all clear that the that who the two parties end up nominating is who the bulk of their members would like them to nominate. As a first approximation, nobody votes in primaries, and really nobody ever goes to a caucus. Yeah. yeah. And then once that's done, you have this incredibly intense partisanship, such that you're guaranteed the consolidation of your party, more or less. And then, you know, you're playing on the margins of how do you go from 44% of the vote to 48% or 51% or, you know, depending on how many third parties are running around. And and that, to me, is a real different thing and, mm. and possibly a real danger. And one of the reasons I think it's very hard to talk about it as a danger is that almost every part of it individually, particularly the, the, the early parts of it, key into things that we like in the system – Social media is more participatory. It's more democratic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's, it, you know, it, it's good that more people are able to have a voice. It's good that, you know, the only way into the media is not controlled by like five white dudes in suits. It's good that pri- I don't want to go back to where party conventions decide primaries. That feels really weird to me. Right, right. On the other hand, that does open up new weaknesses in the system. And they're not ones that I think we have language for. And they're really not ones that I think that we have a way to do anything about. I mean, I think both the Democratic and the Republican parties are in some ways unhappy about how their 2016 primaries went, and neither one of them is going to dare do a thing about it. Yeah. And and I think that's an important piece of, of, of the period we're in. Some of the checks on the system were not democratic. They might have been liberal, but they were not democratic. Mm. We have unwound that because we have a really powerful democratic ideology, something I think you talk about very persuasively in the book, is that the myth of our democracy often outpaces the the reality of our democracy. And always has done. And always has done. But we are very caught into that myth. But we are now open to takeovers in a way that we weren't before. Yeah, you know, one of the weird things that the internet does, which which I talk about in the book and, and haven't quite finished grappling with, is that in an odd way, we always had a fiction about our political system, right? Um, in the 19th century, in the late 18th century, we built a set of institutions that the founding fathers certainly thought of very explicitly as a republic in opposition to democracy. Parliamentary democracy in Britain was built as a weird blood-soaked compromise between uh, a king on his knees and an aristocracy. And we retrospectively started to say over the course of the 19th century that those were democratic institutions, that they were meant to somehow facilitate the rule of the people, which they historically hadn't been. I mean, in America, most of them in Britain, but even there were real limits. The principal distinction between a republic and a democracy, the Federalist Papers read, is the total exclusion of the people in the collective capacity from any share in the government. That is one of our founding documents. So over the course of the 19th century, egalitarian sentiment rises, we start to say, hey, these institutions are democratic. This is what it looks like to translate the views of a people. Because in the words of, for example, John Adams, it is impossible for all of us to travel so far and to assemble in one place and to find you know, a stadium that's big enough for all of us. So the best we can do is to vote for representatives. That wasn't ever quite true. As some socialists argued, you could have had, you know, either political representatives would be bound to majority votes in the districts. So you could have certain different council structures and so on. So actually, you could have always had a system that is more directly responsive to popular views. But it was true enough that this kind of democratic myth allowed us to strike a balance between having a system that's pretty functional and so on, and that that seems legitimate and responsive to people. 
I think one of the odd things that the internet does that we really haven't talked about is that it provides people with a very clear instinctive sense of what a more direct democracy would look like. It makes the institutions of elections, we have to go and line up every two or four years in a weird polling booth, you know, seem really archaic. And it gives you a model of what direct agency looks like. You go on Facebook, a friend of yours posts something you like, you click a button, there's like a little blue light, which, you know, activates reward centers in your brain. And the, you know, 17 jumps to an 18, right? And that is so much more direct that people say, hey, are these institutions actually really meant to translate what I want into policy? Now, what I don't think is that people want direct democracy. They don't want to have to go and figure out, you know, the omnibus bill and what gets included and what doesn't get included and, you know, what rate to fund the Federal Aviation Agency at, right? So they don't actually want the alternative, but the alternative is much more present in their mind. And that makes it much harder for us to sustain this myth that a set of institutions that were always semi-responsive at best, in some ways have become less responsive, were actually democratic. And that is one of the more complicated things that is eroding people's uh, willingness to defend the institutions. When you look forward and you think about what a politician needs to do, mm. let me actually ask this question even from a different direction without deleting my initial hesitant beginning on it. <laughs> we're embracing hesitations. And, I, I, we're uh, embracing the hesitations here today. When you think about what the answers are here, are the answers small d democratic or the answers big L leadership? Is what will make you feel better seeing the Democratic Party or even the Republican Party see the emergence of leaders who reflect a more inclusive patriotism, who are conscious of the kinds of issues you're bringing up and, and seem to foreground it in their politics? Or do you need to see changes in public opinion before you will feel safer again? And are those things even different? It's a great question. I think it's got to be a little bit of both. You know, we have clear progress to make towards more Americans embracing the idea that it's unacceptable to discriminate against various minorities and so on, right? Um, we have a lot more progress to make towards getting Americans to be comfortable with the idea that we'll eventually be a majority-minority country. And that, ha that has to happen on terms of political equality. We certainly have progress to make on... I would say, and this is a more partisan point than the rest of the things I've said, but but from my understanding of the economy, I think we have to persuade more people that we need to do much more to ensure that ordinary people have an increase in the standard of living, right? But I don't think that's going to happen without political leadership. And there I sort of agree with you that one of the problems perhaps is that it's become harder to have political leadership of certain forms. I think the task now of politicians who want to fight populism, and this is true in the United States, it, it, it applies beyond the United States, well, is that they need to offer an optimistic vision of the future. That as long as people are baseline cynical and pessimistic about what is possible in politics, they're always going to wind up choosing the kinds of political forces that say everything is shitty and corrupt anyway. I promise to go and smash up the system. And perhaps you don't actually expect me to deliver that much, 
but at least you're going to have some sort of cathartic satisfaction in seeing me really annoy those guys you hate and really blow the system up, right? One of the things, by the way, we really underestimate with Donald Trump is the degree to which his supporters love his most outrageous statements, partially because some of them agree with them, but often that even if they don't agree with them, it has the effect of everybody they hate denouncing Trump, and that makes them like Trump. Right? So to win against that, you need to have somebody who actually is able to offer a realistic vision of how things are going to get better. And then they need to be able to go and actually implement that. And that is incredibly difficult in the American system where you have all of those veto points, where it is so hard for an opposition party to stop progress on you know, economic legislation or something like that. Um, so it's a pretty narrow path that we're walking here. But absolutely, you have to have something to offer. You have to have something to compete. In my mind, the 2016 election was a kind of competition between an extremist politics of change and a moderate politics of the status quo. And what we found out is that when that is the option set, a lot of people choose the extremist politics of change. Now, some of them may have been extremists, but I think a lot of people just said, things aren't working for me, let's try something new. Let's shake things up. So you've got to be able to compete with that. We were talking earlier about the false choice or the question of whether it's a false choice between identity politics and, and economic populism, which is the way, in addition to the question of Donald Trump's appeal being framed, I think the way the 2016 Democratic primary is almost always framed. When I... Well, which is weird because Bernie Sanders was not actually an identity politics guy, exactly. right? But well, well, the idea is Hillary Clinton was the identity politics candidate. And, and well, I, I want to make... Yeah, so you see, I, think, I actually think there's four quadrants here and everybody is deeply confused in the debate and I'm also still deeply confused in the debate, but it's not at all clear... You know, there's a more center-left identity politics crowd and there's a more far-left identity politics crowd. And there's a more center-left economic crowd and a more far-left economic crowd. There's a lot of confusion in the debate because actually the, the political cleavage is not very obvious here. I think that's right. But I do think that in the way that you often have parties trying to refight the last war, when I look at what the Democratic Party gave up in 2016, like really with Clinton, what they gave up, I don't think it was economic populism, actually. Uh, I think that compared to... Democrats in recent years, she was pretty far to the left of most of them. I think it was reformism. I think that what Trump had, what Obama had before him, what George W. Bush had in 2008 as a uniter, not a divider, an outside governor from Texas, what Bill Clinton had. Hmm. I think that there is a, going to your point about discontent of the system, a sense that, you know what, I'm upset about the system too. Yeah. And, yeah. and I want to change it. The system is rigged. It's something that yep. Obama rightly emphasized in, in his 2008 campaign. Clinton was unique among almost every national politician I've ever mm. dealt with and how much she believed in the system as it existed. It's why yeah, yeah. when you criticize her on, say, taking all the money from Goldman Sachs. That's how it works. She doesn't, like, understand it. She, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, well, everybody does it. I do it, and it doesn't bother, you know, like, I still do a good job. Like, to her, it's like, you know what? She she plays by the rules of the game, and th that's within the rules, mm. and, you know, she makes change for people, and people should get off her back. And I do think that more than Democrats are going to find that they have to go down the identity politics path or the econ path, I think that what they're going to have to do is recapture something Obama had and that Trump had a little bit of, although I think you could have, you could have it in much more realistic and reasonable forms, which is a sense of reformist fervor um, that operates a little bit independently hmm. of policy ideas and even cultural appeals. 
that has struck me as being a consistent winner in American politics and something that I think Clinton's distance from is underplayed in the uh, breakdowns of her candidacy. There's a really great recent sociological paper that looks at what we call lying demagogues, right? It looks at the paradox of how is it that somebody like Donald Trump can clearly be untruthful about so many things on issues which people know that he is untruthful about. And they actually demonstrate that they do know that he's lying about some of those things or telling inaccurate information about some of those things. And yet they say that he's more trustworthy than, for example, Hillary Clinton in this survey. And we're trying to explain that. And what they do is this sort of quite clever survey experiment in a college election, which doesn't bring in actually most of the things we're talking about. It's not about the economy. It's not about identity. It's not about any of those things. But what it does is to create one condition where people have reason to think that the system is legitimate, that it's reasonably clean, that the student government is working well for them. And one where it looks like the student government leaders are sort of, you know, really profiting from that, getting better jobs and giving preferential treatment from the college. And what it shows is that when college students sort of face this hypothetical election between two candidates for student leader, they wind up, if they think the system is legitimate, they really punish a guy who makes false statements in a campaign speech. When they think that the system is rigged, they gravitate towards the person who is criticizing the system, even if he's lying. Um, which is a really interesting point, right? That 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 when people perceive the system as illegitimate, you've got to be willing to criticize it. And in fact, as long as you criticize it, you even get away with lies. Now, I don't advocate that that's what the Democrats should do. But unless you tap into that energy and unless you are very clear and, and forceful about the things in the system that aren't working, you're just not going to get a hearing to start off with. Now, there's a different product that I want to, since this is more of a conversation, uh, I'm now going um, to dare ask you a question. There's one really deep paradox that I'm grappling with when I think forward to 2020, which is that I think the presidential candidate who would be likely to win is different in some ways from the president we need. I know how to win the 2020 presidential election. You need a candidate who can credibly promise the American people, you vote for me, you can forget about politics for four years. Look, you and I, by virtue of writing about politics, anybody who listens to this podcast by virtue of wanting to listen to a podcast that is mostly, if not exclusively, about politics, is on the far end of a distribution of how much Americans care about politics. And right now, even if you don't care about politics, you switch on the television, you go to a bar, you go to dinner with your friends, you come home to your family, you go to the Thanksgiving dinner table, you're going to have to talk about politics and people are sick of it. So in a weird way, I think exactly the kind of candidate who in 2016 would have done poorly, because I think people want to change and excitement and so on, would actually do quite well in 2020. Somebody who can just say, hey, you vote for me. I'm a reasonable guy or girl or whatever it is, right? I'm not going to rock the boat. I promise you there's not going to be any weird scandals. You can just switch off for I think they would win in a landslide. Now, the problem is that that doesn't create the mandate and, and, and the agenda and, and, and the conditions you need to actually address some of those very, very deeply rooted problems in our society. So they may not be the president we need, but they're the person who could win. I have two thoughts on that. 
One is that that person probably also doesn't win a primary. That is right. The other is that— But that makes me more worried about the 2020 general. I am—one reason I asked you the question I had earlier, I am very, very skeptical that anyone um, within the presidency can seriously make much progress on the kinds of problems we're talking about here. Yeah. And that isn't to say that, you know, one couldn't imagine a leader with an agenda. Just when you imagine what is going to be possible to pass through Congress, when you imagine sort of what powers are going to have and not have, when you imagine how many problems you're going to have to deal with simultaneously as you're cleaning up from the Trump era, you know, I, I think there's going to be some amount of mess left uh, around. I think that the results are going to be limited. Well, I want to say two things to that. One pessimistic, one optimistic, right? The pessimistic point is that if you take seriously my analysis, and obviously you might not agree with it, that there's these driving forces of populism, right? That at the very least, we have to realize that very sim- that Donald Trump is not sui generis. He's not on a, one of its, his kind. There are very similar movements going on in lots of different countries around the world that have really gained uh, in traction over the past decades. It is implausible to think, whatever the causes exactly are, it is implausible to think that this is just a weird blip or a particular political constellation in one election in the United States. There's something deeper going on here. So if there's something deeper going on, then then the causes of it need to be grappled with. Perhaps they'll go away on their own miraculously, but that doesn't seem likely, right? So when you're saying, look, I don't think the president can do something about this, I agree with you. And one of your critiques of my book that we haven't brought up as much in this podcast, but we've written about publicly is actually more pessimistic. You sort of framed this in a more optimistic way at the beginning of the podcast. It was more pessimistic. It was to say, well, perhaps none, perhaps there's no policy that can deal with this stuff because the solutions are difficult, right? I I agree with that. I, I think policy is some of the best tools we have, but they may prove to be inadequate. And if you're right that the president can't ultimately do something about this, then we may not be able to respond adequately. And then our system is in even deeper danger than we brought out at the beginning of a conversation. Now, the optimistic thing that I want to say is that the few moments in which societies have actually come together in surprising ways have been in the most unlikely circumstances, which is to say after giant conflicts. When you think of Rwanda in the 90s, when you think of Europe after World War II embarking on the European Union and so on, when you think of a brief but inspiring moment of reconstruction after the Civil War, in a way those those were precisely after the deepest divisions that you suddenly have a sort of coherence and so on. So if not in 2020, when? I think that's a good note to end on. All right. One note of optimism. Yasha Monk, the book is The People vs. Democracy. And you will hear this in this podcast, but you should be reading it. Thank you very much. We've been back for a third time. Thank you, Ezra. Thank you to Yasha Monk. Thank you, as always, to my producer, Jillian Weinberger, the Ezra Klein Shows of Vox Media podcast production. And we will be back next week. 